This podcast is supported by Patreon. You can show your support on patreon.com slash toadsanime and get four early episodes a month for just a few bucks. Plus it helps Ryan buy Digimon toys. Alternatively, spend it on something more important. Hello, welcome to another episode of the Toad on Games podcast. The only podcast in the world that has people talking on it. And that is, that's actually fact. Um, that is generally true. Name me one other one and I will give you a Kit Kat. Um, with me today, we have uh, Tony and Richard from Far Few Giants. Um, do you want to say hello a bit about what you do? Tony, I'll let you start. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm Tony from Far Few Giants. I am a writer, kind of game director, I suppose. Um, and we've recently been making a bunch of short and or political games. Cool. And Richard? Hi, I'm Richard. I'm uh art director at Farfi Giants. Uh I do mostly like animation and uh stylized graphics. Um yeah, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> art stuff. Yeah, I, I always uh we, we mentioned a little bit before we started recording, but I always spring that on people like say say what you do. And when you give someone a direct question like that and they have to condense down everything they do, they're like, uh um <laughs> what do i do am i a human i don't know <laughs> i think it's especially difficult for people in like indie games because you wear a lot of hats and also yeah. no oh. one is explicitly giving you a job role like yeah like if i if i was if you're in triple a or something you could just say like uh well my contract says narrative designer so that's what i do um yeah. but realistically i owe my job's worth <laughs> I I, yeah, yeah yeah i think that's that's the majority of people that are on here as well, to be honest, like in previous episodes. They're like, I am the um, uh, CEO, I guess. I've never even thought of that before, but I guess I'm, I'm the CEO. I, I am, <laughs> I'm the CEO now. Yeah, because, of course, indies just, they have to, they're often small teams. They do everything, so it's, they don't have necessary designated roles, um, which is cool, but also very busy. Um <laughs> Very busy. <laughs> we end up doing Very busy. things like PR and marketing and uh, mm. a lot of Q- QA testing and localization, things that we don't expect to be doing. Reading legal documents. Yeah. Mm. It's it's all that stuff that I feel gets sprung on indies and they really don't consider it when they're, when they're planning releases, especially because I work in marketing myself. I, sp- I especially see that side of it Yeah, where developers will be, you know, making a game for a year, two years, however long maybe just a month or whatever and then at the end of it they have to do marketing and they're just they literally don't know how to do that especially if it's even worse if obviously it's like it's a commercial game and they, they need to make money from it and you know they've been living off of god knows what funds for the last year um yeah then that's 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 very daunting i imagine for indies is realizing oh dear we have to do the legal we have to do the publishing we have to do the age ratings we have to do everything um yeah 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 <laughs> not good <laughs> um cool so yeah i guess we should talk a little bit about what you what you do so um obviously i i i i've played um i played some of your games previously but uh we we ended up speaking about uh, doing this podcast when the uh the sacrifices was uh going on to kickstarter and, and all that stuff um so i guess you touched on it a bit already but farfy giants is a team that if I was to, if I was to say one sort of USP, I suppose about about Farfy Giants is, it is a developer that creates small narrative games that really aren't afraid to pull their punches. 
um, in regards to politics and sensitive topics and powerful topics. Yes, accurate. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You can have that. <laughs> it's, uh, it's remarkably similar to what we uh, originally wrote when we were trying to identify what the company was. Yeah. Yeah, when you're like putting a company together and you're sat there and you're like, well, what, what kind of work are we actually going to do together? And you try and verbalize that so that you have something, you have like a direction. Yeah, that's mm. pretty much what we did. <laughs> so mission accomplished, okay, so I suppose. So that is, you would say that that is actually sort of your uh, your, your company mission. So do you kind of look at whenever you're focusing on a game, it doesn't just happen to come about that it tells a political message. That is your your goal you actually start with that yeah um it's not always political necessarily it tends mm. to be and i mean they're all political if you use a really broad definition of the sure. term um yeah but all of our games have some element of social commentary um some of mm. them are more like heady so they'll end up being feeling more philosophical uh and then mm. others will be explicitly political like we just released a game that uh is about you coordinating a protest um and yes. it's like about uh lord sugar in the uk trying to take over um with like a uh, a cheated election so it's explicitly linked to what's going on in the world and it's it's set in a, in the real world um and talking about something that's going on right now whereas some of our other games are more general um in their political stance so like ring of fire was vaguely like behind it all it had a lot of like uh climate change politics and uh feelings on the alt-right and identity politics yeah and identity politics and um, the Imagine Leviathan, which is like a sort of survival horror game, uh, was kind of based around existential crises <laughs> and the way people avoid thinking about certain topics that are, that are significantly bigger than them and therefore will kind of head towards a cliff. Um, yeah, I'm rambling now, but roughly political. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I guess like political and social and some, something to say, I suppose, is a good way to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, like something to have... say. So we start we start yeah. a project and that's the thing that comes first. Yeah, we, we put a bunch of um, ideas on a big whiteboard and then we kind of come back to it and try and figure out which of those are actually saying something or, or which combinations of those ideas are actually saying something. And we'll usually pretty quickly settle on a theme and everything else follows from there. Um, so it'll be... I don't know, the theme is like, how do you, what should we do about the fact that there's existential problems we refuse to think about? And then mm -hmm. the game forms as an answer to that. And we try and tie everything as tightly as possible to that, like the mode of gameplay, the story, the art, everything. It always comes back to a, a central thematic question. When it's working well, sometimes we just get lost and go overboard on other <laughs> stuff. But that like 90% of the time, that's that's how it works. That's interesting. It's interesting that that is kind of set out from the beginning. And uh, and as a side point, I love that you literally use a whiteboard. The number of Indies <laughs> I've spoken to, they're like, we write everything on a whiteboard, and that's how it starts. I love it. 
Classic. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's now become a digital whiteboard because yeah, uh, because of COVID, we can't be in the same right. room anymore. Of course, oh, of course. So, so how did this duo start to begin with? So, do you, you, I, I mean, I, I, in my head, I'd assumed that you would always were working remotely from each other, but is is that not the case? Um, we were, we have always been working remotely, but it wasn't always a conscious choice. Um, mm-hmm. We. The company started remote and then we intended to be in the same place uh, built up to that. Like we, we have office space in Belfast that we got through a, um, a local funding body, got access to through that, um, which we were really excited to move into and, and not be remote anymore. And then COVID happened. So uh, <laughs> uh, so that put paid to that idea. Um, but we've it, it didn't really affect us because we were already used to working remotely. Um, right. We would sometimes you know, talk through ideas in person, but yeah, I, I guess to kind of go back to your original question there, which was how did Farfi Giants begin? Um, we we met at this event called Feral Vector in the UK. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but I don't think so. Basically, it's a we describe it generally as like a game dev hippie commune for about three days every year when there's no pandemic um, in the forests of Yorkshire. <laughs> so there's this like refitted church that the event is kind of held in, which uh, borders like on one side of it, you've got the town of Hebden Bridge, which is this quaint little village, I guess. Well, not it's bigger than a village, quaint little town uh, in a valley in Yorkshire. And on the other side of this big church, you've got, uh, quite a large forest area, um, and bunches of game devs descend on it once a year, once a year to, to play experimental games, run around yelling things in the forest, uh, and generally kind of let loose and exchange ideas. Um, so we met at one of those, and um, I think we bonded over running around the forest yelling about business. Like yeah, this it, LARP. it was a business year. That's right. Yeah, business year 3000 or something. It was like a post-apocalyptic business LARP where everyone was like running around in ties yelling about angel investors. Um, and uh, this sounds, this sounds almost pretend. I, I mean, I, love that. <laughs> I know. I bet it's one of those things where it's like you couldn't write something as stupid. Yeah, this is as a crazy story. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the, the thing is insane. I recommend going when the pandemic's off. Like, one of the last years, there was a big wrestling match uh, between art, games, business, and video games, but with a space <laughs> in the middle <laughs> and to decide whether video games were art for once and for all. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they, they hired real wrestlers and put on a proper actual, like with a ring wrestling match in the, uh, in the, in the town hall. <laughs> um, which is pretty insane. But anyway, yeah, so we, we met at one of these and then um, started working on a few things, just like hobby projects, uh, which didn't really go anywhere. I was teaching English and Richard was crunching at various um, like freelance studios he was working with. And then uh, got to 2017 or 2018. I, I've completely lost track of it. Um, <laughs> and we were on a beach in Brighton for the developer event. And uh, we just started chatting about making very low 
demand narrative games. Like, what could we make that would actually be complete and shippable that was just the two of us? Um, and with Richard's background in art and animation and mine in writing, we were like, if you take something like Subsurface Circular, where it's just one very pretty scene, basically. Um, and uh, so it screenshots really well. And at a glance for a trailer, it looks really high production value. Um, but it's all condensed just into that one very limited space. Uh, and then have the actual gameplay take place over purely text, which is cheap to produce on mass. Um, then you can make a reasonable length experience that looks really good and et cetera, et cetera. And we wouldn't need anyone else really. Um, and then, so we stopped, we started Far Few Giants and um, uh, that was it. <laughs> started working on a game with those exact qualities, which was Ring of Fire, like a detective game um, that uh, it was kind of like Subsurface meets Her Story in that you had text-based gameplay similar to Subsurface Circular, but the detection, like detective mechanic took place in a, through a search bar and like an in-game Google, basically. Um, mm -hmm. And that was it. A company was born. <laughs> Sweet. I love uh, There's nothing more indie than saying that your, uh, your partnership began by LARPing as business people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were pretending we knew what we were, what business was, and then we were indies, and that's how it was. I've never thought about it like that before, but it really, and the entire time we've been running around pretending we know what business is, but it. in our heart of hearts, we're still actually just those immature kids <laughs> from, uh, from 2016 or whatever it was, running around yelling business. Yeah, it was it was really <laughs> surreal for me because I'd come from that tech uh, industry before, where mm. we would be talking about uh, KPIs and like uh, angel investors and all that junk. So I was very much living it at the time, uh, and then LARPing it in a farcical way. I love it. Um, I feel like I need to do that now, though. I, I need to go there. Yeah. <laughs> so wrestlers. the thing is, though, like, Feral Vector is amazing. You should definitely go. But they try and do something completely different each year. There was mm. one or two years only where they ran the business year. And it was so successful, they decided they couldn't do it again. Because otherwise, <laughs> Feral Vector would just become the business year LARP event. Um, and would turn into something yeah. it wasn't supposed to be. So instead, uh, maybe it will come back eventually. But Instead, uh, every time you go, you're just in for a surprise, basically, and it will be something like the stupid wrestling match or the business year or I'm trying to think of what else has been done. Oh, one year there was uh, uh, Curiosity Live. So you remember Peter Molyneux's Curiosity where you tap the cube? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they, uh, they put a secret inside a, the inside of a Kinder Egg and then... Um, uh, set it in a block of concrete, <laughs> and nice. uh, and gave gave the the attendees a spoon to try and spoon through the concrete, or you could buy a bigger spoon or a sharper spoon as a microtransaction off the event organizers <laughs> for a pound. Nice. Um, and uh, when <laughs> I think when I think it was Patrick Ash got to the middle and uh, he got the he got the thing the Kinder Egg thing opened it up and it was like a uh, like a pocket watch 
and inside there's just a picture of Peter Molyneux. <laughs> nice. Can I have yeah. heard of this before? That seems know. like that in itself would have been like a story in Kotaku or something. Yeah, I don't know. It just, it's never, it's kind of like a poorly kept secret, I think. I guess, yeah. I like that. Um, <laughs> um, so going from that, and now you are running um, a Patreon, and you're kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're making a game a month. Is that still the aim at the moment? Or are you focusing on the Imagined Leviathan? Or We're in a kind of transition period. Um, hmm. So, oh, this is going to require some explaining. <laughs> um, so we we were doing a game a month, and then in June for our very first, it might actually have been the end of May, um, somewhere on that barrier, uh, for our very first monthly game, we released uh, this game called The Night Fisherman, um, which was uh, one of our political games is uh, set in the Brit- uh, in the English Channel um, on boats. And it was basically a retelling of that first opening scene with uh, the farmer and Colonel Hans Lander from Inglorious Bastards. Um, mm-hmm. And it was an anti-racist uh, game about um, refugees and immigration across the channel. Um, and it was only, it was very short, it's like 10 minutes long. And we put it out and literally like within the same hour uh we received the news anyway um the news might have broken slightly earlier that george floyd had been murdered and then uh so we shut up for a bit and focused on doing like activisty things and just left the game alone but then richard noticed that um itch was looking for games to put in their big racial justice bundle they were building so we submitted to that and by whatever provenance the um the game seems to have re- seemed to resonate with somebody curating the bundle at itch, so it got the top spot for the opening weekend, mm. um, and it just meant the game kind of blew up, especially by yeah. our standards, and by like you know micro indie ten minute game standards, uh, mm. and we were like in Kotaku and like um, Escapist and like a bunch of like news sites, and it was getting thousands and thousands and thousands of downloads. Yeah. Um, so we were like, holy shit. Um, Let's follow that up. So we started doing monthly games along along that vein. Uh, later, we then released some other things, but it was so like outlyingly successful that we decided yeah. it would be wrong <laughs> to not finish that um, and and try and like keep telling these like anti racist political stories because um, people had responded to it. We had like refugees joining our Discord and saying like, ah. Oh, man this was so cool it was really great that you did this um so we tried to follow it up continued doing monthly games which included being part of the 10mg collection for 10 minute games we released a survival game we released uh some more in in the like follow-ups to night fisherman and then we we did a uh this kickstarter that you mentioned at the start of the podcast for the Sacrifices series, which is The Night Fisherman, The Outcast Lovers, Change Architect, and so on. There was going to be like seven of them. However, mm-hmm. uh, the success of The Night Fisherman was a, a fluke, basically, that we couldn't reproduce. And uh, it didn't it didn't work out. Like, the Kickstarter didn't meet its goal. Um, and all the while, this, uh, like, existential uh, survival horror game 
that we published the Imagine Leviathan had been doing really, really well right. and like gaining loads of organic traffic and stuff. Uh, and people seem to be resonating with the themes in that. So, but without like some kind of extraordinary separate media event or like to a turn of fate, like creating that, it was just happening on its own. Um, so when the Kickstarter didn't succeed, we were originally planning to keep making monthly games and focus in on the sacrifices, but then we were just burnt out. Like we poured everything into the change ar- architect. We've been like, right. Uh, we, we, <laughs> we did overwork for a couple of weeks um, and then had to take time out afterwards. Um, mm-hmm. And so now we're at a point where we're, we're in the process of making the Imagine Leviathan our main project um, mm-hmm. and working towards maybe like just after Christmas, having that as like a, an ongoing early access title and then working up to like a paid release or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still really want to do the monthly games and we haven't answered that question yet. So we've even been doing yourselves. it. Yeah, even for ourselves. Like we've been doing monthly games up until this point it's been pretty hardcore but then we have also got significantly better at it like we know the processes for publishing and marketing our games we're quicker at making them now um like stupid things like the unity project setup takes us way less time now um we know what assets to import like tools wise to quick to quicken the process so it's the, the main thing from now on is definitely going to be Imagine Leviathan. But yeah. if we can, there's like a bunch of other prototypes that we made earlier in the year that we could polish up and release. There's also like the Ring of Fire um, demo that we made that uh, we can release on Steam maybe. there's We've got a lot of options, but we just haven't answered the question yet. Mm-hmm. That was a horrendously long answer. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I obviously, I, I already knew about the Kickstarter and stuff, but it's, it's, it's a difficult one to breach um, for me to broach with you. Obviously, that that, that it wasn't funded, and that was a, a, a great shame for me because I had shared it, and I, and I thought it was a wonderful project. Um, Thank you. I thought that, uh, I, you know, obviously, I, I thought the Outcast Lovers and Change Architect and what, what we did get to see was really cool. Um, but yeah, obviously, if if you were working on a game a month and like really pushing yourself, I can imagine that. You know, when the when the Kickstarter didn't happen, they had to kind of refocus on sensibly the one that is catching people's interest. It's it's important to think about the positives of it though, because mm. what we discovered through the Kickstarter is that we were hoping um, by releasing free games every month, we would build up enough of an audience that they would then want to fund a story that they were um, passionate about and wanted to support. Uh, but that wasn't the case. And so what that told us was mm-hmm. that if we did finish the series and create all seven episodes, that we wouldn't necessarily be able to recoup the costs on that project. So goals for like porting it to Switch or uh, getting it localized in a bunch of languages may not come into fruition. Um, mm. And we were aiming specifically at the itch audience with that with that project. And the, we found the itch audience didn't really convert to sales as well as the Steam audience does. Um, right. 
and Leviathan being a survival game just naturally has a larger, more passionate Steam audience uh, available to it. There are arguments as well about the game being, I guess, less politicized, like less wearing its heart on its sleeve, which we're kind of thinking about internally, about how explicit we want to be about that in our marketing. Do you mean for Leviathan? Yeah, um, as it seems like the the gaming audience isn't quite ready for the content that we're putting out just yet. Maybe we're maybe we're a few mm. years ahead of ahead of the audience. But yeah, that's where that's where we're left at the moment. There was some disappointment around, like we were making these explicitly political games, and uh, mm. people found them to be evocative and felt that they were important. Um, mm. And people are now disappointed. Like if it, it feels to people, it felt to us to begin with, like uh, a great shame that we weren't going to be able to do political content or we weren't going to be able to make games that were as like affecting as that or as direct as that. Um, But I don't, I don't think that's actually the case. I think we just need to change our approach. So like all that same desire to be outspoken and to um, rally and energize people, all all that same stuff uh, will go into whatever we make because like, frankly, we're not very good <laughs> at working to a brief. Um, like, right. we get completely lost in that. Um, it's why we're doing indie, really, uh, is because we, in order to stay motivated, we have to really care about whatever we're working on. And the only way to make ourselves really care about the project is to inject your own thoughts and feelings into it and feel like it's expressing you. So, yeah, I mean, whatever we make is going to end up with all that content in it. Like, us going back to the Imagine Leviathan now, in my opinion, just means that the Imagine Leviathan will get significantly more um, uh, political. Maybe not as explicit as Night Fisherman and the rest, um, but it will, Mm -hmm. yeah, it will have more of that stuff in it. I just, I'm not sure about putting it on the Steam page anymore. You know, like for for Night Fisherman, I I suspect part of the reason that did well is because it didn't tell you anything about the content of the game. It was just like mm-hmm. you're at sea, a guy with a shotgun approaches you. He's a like a yeah. violent vigilante or something without saying what he's actually doing there. What are you going to do? Um, and the title of the game was just The Night Fisherman. So people were like, what is this? Is it a fishing game? Oh, it looks like a thriller. Like, hmm. Okay, I'll give it a punt. And then it turned out to be political. Mm. Whereas on the other games, we were like, yeah. this is a political game. This is what you, this is what this game is about. And uh, maybe, maybe you just have to trick people. Yeah, I mean, rightly or wrongly, uh, I mean, I, I think it's wrong. I, I, I'd like to see games that want to, 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 to have a message and be political and stuff. Rightly or wrongly, it seems that games as a whole don't want it to appear too on the nose that it's political, which seems silly. But that seems to be the message. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's weird. Like, I think about other media formats and um, you think about things like, uh, uh, what's that film? Spotlight. You know, the one that was about um, uh, abuse in Catholic Church in the US. 
and like that is ex- mm. it is explicitly about the thing it says it's about um and yet people will yeah. watch that as entertainment like it doesn't necessarily put people off that it's about those pretty hard topics because they'll just yeah mm. you don't even have to be interested in that like you don't have to be interested in serial killers to watch and enjoy zodiac um but in games for some reason it tends to be that if you say like oh this is a game about some serious thing um it's it's inherently off-putting to the audience and uh mm. you you have to kind of like mask it with a bunch of other stuff reading through some of the comments uh on articles that have been put out about our games it's very strange that we that we're talking about how games like frostpunk treat both uh capitalism and socialism equally and present it to you in a balanced way and i i don't entirely agree with that no um, it's, bull- it's bullshit <laughs> it's, it's kind of they're kind of hoping for something like star wars but where you can be the emp- you can be the empire or you can be a, a rebel and both are treated equally <laughs> as if there's not some inherent good and bad uh it's, it's an extension of like forum board centrism i think um where people are just like oh you have to represent both sides yeah. fairly and equally and it's like well one side is saying like can you just let people live and the other side yeah. is like can you drown refugees in the ocean please uh they, these are not <laughs> These are not viewpoints that I want to give equal mm. airtime to, uh, or equal treatment to. It's and it's ridiculous to yeah. expect people to do yeah. it. Um, and then the arguments of uh, like examples that people bring up as like in their view centrist media that treats things fairly is things like Star Wars. That's the super common one that comes up all the time. It's like the Empire are literally Nazis. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, looking if 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 I was suppo- if I was to be leaning and and view some sort of optimism on the topic of why gamers in general aren't that open to a game that is brazenly political, uh, maybe maybe it's because it's a lot more immersive than a game. Like you are, you have to be fully involved. You have to be very engaged. Um, you know, when 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 I look at a game um, like this, Dragon Cancer, for example. Um, which un- unfortunately, even though it's gorgeous, it, it 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 undersold its expectations, and I think a lot of that is down to it's it is a lot to take in, and if you were watching it in a film, you could watch it and cry a bit, but playing it, it's so much more involved that it yeah. is a lot harder to take all that in. Um, on the flip side, obviously, <laughs> gamers in general just seem to have this weird as as a general group. Just seem to have this weird aversion to anything that's political. Um, yeah, I I do understand that. I think like when the proposition of a game is like, if you tell people what its themes are, you're saying you are going to have to deal with this, particularly in like an interactive narrative. Mm. Whereas with a film, you're not necessarily saying that. You're, you're just saying like these are the themes. You're going to be told about some of this, <laughs> but like you're not. No prior knowledge is actually required. Um, and you're not going to have to like Think. reveal your <laughs> inner fascist. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely feel that way. Like, um, there's a ga- game by Cella Roman called Before I Forget, and mm. I bought it when it came out. Um, but it it deals with um, dementia, which my which my nan had, and so I've been putting off and putting off playing it because mm. I feel like I'm not mentally there ready 
to deal with those emotions just yet. Mm. Um, and so I can definitely see that aspect of it. And I, I think there is some value in, um, like we've been doing, adding an element of drama and theatricality on top for you to enjoy and engage with in another way. But yeah, it's it's definitely a real real problem, especially when everything's so bleak at the moment. Having to mm. think about uh, hard hard topics, but it's also one of the benefits of games that you you can watch a documentary or you can watch a film, or you can read a book, and you won't you won't be able to get into the heads of the characters necessarily in the same way and make mm. those decisions for yourself. Like we're directly putting you in the position of making those choices and you have to pick a side watching people play the change architect and make those decisions about whether to surge towards the police or whether to try and let the protesters escape through buildings or whether to like personally go and put yourself in front of a tank and that kind of stuff like i almost feel bad to be honest um because (laughs) you watch people's emotions and they just like squirm and squeal and it it is pretty horrible um you can tell they're definitely feeling it more than i think people would if they were just watching a a a tv show or a film like there's a direct comparison that could be made i think because in the change architect the whole like tanks rolling out on a protest thing that happens in it uh was directly referencing a scene and a feeling that was generated by um, a scene of a protest in The Handmaid's Tale in the first season where they had, um, it's like a flashback to before all the nasty shit um, where there was a protest going on and like the police showed up, opened fire um, in the States and like tanks rolled in and it all kind of escalates. Uh, And it's really horrible to watch. Like the first time you see that, particularly when it came out because you're sat there grimacing and you have this deep sunken feeling of like, Jesus, that could happen. Like that is not even that far away. That's not that much of a stretch of the imagination, but the reaction to, to that scene where it's, you're just kind of grimacing and you're like, Oh, I don't like this. Doesn't really compare to when I've watched people play the change architect and they're like, like people look genuinely traumatized. I'm not really selling it here. Um, <laughs> not that I'm trying to, uh, but like, yeah, it is pretty hardcore. Maybe, maybe, maybe we took it too far. I don't know. Well, I think, I think, I personally think that it's um, in a sort of macabre kind of way. It's kind of beautiful that video games are able to get those kind of emotions out of people in the same way because we there is no comparison in other entertainment like as you say you can't you don't really watch a film or a tv show and get that same emotion and maybe they are uncomfortable emotions or uncomfortable thoughts but um that's art and i think it's i mean i think it's amazing that video games are able to do that um it may not it may just be that gamers don't want to feel like that all the time <laughs> they they might not they might not have it in them to play one every month or something but i think it's beautiful that that those kind of experiences exist because i i mean I, I i've played these games i've played other games that make me feel something and jet king spooner's games are, are, are similarly yeah. good at it and stuff and and i love it i mean it's i i i, I have you know 
deep thoughts about it and, and emotions and stuff that you wouldn't usually seek out but um it's a great experience it's a great experience a great piece of art um yeah i'm not really sure i'm going with this but <laughs> but i, I, I think I, I think those kinds of experiences have value and worth and uh, are important and powerful i um, think though it requires on the the player or the reader or the viewer or whatever a certain amount of emotional masochism mm. where like i i feel this from time to time where i i'm you know i'll get bored with some tv show i'm watching and i'll just have to i just i just want something to like <laughs> fuck me up emotionally yeah. <laughs> and i'll go and seek out like yeah a documentary about some traumatic subject or something like that i don't know why i do this but and i feel like a lot of people do do this but it's a pretty specific one like there's a lot of people who just go through life and um this isn't necessarily inherently bad or anything but will not feel like they have to do that they'll just just want to find things that bring them joy and then that's it whereas Mm. i feel like if i'm not watching and playing and reading things that challenge me and open me up to emotions that i don't feel in my normal day-to-day life Mm -hmm. then um i'm not like growing as a person or really experiencing the breadth that the world can offer mm. there's um and there's it's kind of like an emotional tourism i guess um mm. and also just yeah there's a feeling that you have to experience these things in order to be responsible like if there's these horrible wars going on or these like extreme experiences that people are happen- having i feel like i have to watch them in order to, as like a human responsibility, so that right. I can empathize. Like the same reason I'd, I'd spend time watching like when they see us on Netflix about like the um, young black children that got falsely accused of that um, sexual assault in uh, New York or whatever. Uh, like it's not happy viewing. It's wonderfully mm-hmm. acted, and acted and you can enjoy the like cinematography and the set design, all that kind of stuff and the writing. But like it's inherently pretty traumatizing. The same with like documentaries about, you know, racial violence or uh, mass murderers in like collapsed democracies, that kind of stuff. But I just feel like I have to. Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think I feel similarly. Like I, obviously, with video games, there are, there are points where I want to just play a merry game, or I yeah, want to just sure. play Doom and shoot some demons. But if I was exclusively playing those kind of games. I'm not sure I would be as involved and interested in video games as I am. Um, uh, I like we said emotional tourism. That's now the name of this episode. Um, <laughs> I uh, yeah, I like I like the emotional tourism of it. I suppose and that, that you can feel and think all different sorts of things. And some games you don't feel or think anything really. Um, but in other games and, and pieces of entertainment in general, like you are you're, you're feeling different things and thinking and and yeah, I guess as you say, it's kind of. I feel like it's 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 a responsibility almost to 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 invest yourself in 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 that because I am of course exceptionally privileged person and mm. I feel like it, the the absolute bare minimum I can do is at least try to understand um the situations and feelings that other people go through on a small scale. Yeah. And even if you weren't like you're part of the world like I feel like we should all engage with it. Mm. um yeah i don't know it, it's similar to how um travel broadens the mind it kind of yes. like this emotional tourism 
uh, broadens your compassion, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's of course, just a shame that Indies having to pick up that slack and that at the moment, it, these <laughs> sort of experiences don't seem to be super commercial. Um, I think they could be. Yeah. I, th- I just think that the way the video game industry is set up is uh, just structurally repellent to uh, like really thematically strong and like highly emotional experiences. Because although they do like, although in, in AAA video games, like we do want to feel something, everybody, if you ask them, and they're like, you know, do you want really good stories that affect you in video games? The answer is always going to be yes. But like the, the way that video game studios are structured, that like it is a nine to five, they have like hundreds and hundreds of people on a payroll, uh, on like permanent contracts. It means that there's there's very little flexibility. Like they have to put something out which makes a certain amount of money to justify the entire project. They have to be extremely risk averse. I think when you compare that to something like film or TV, where a production company will scale right down between projects to just like come up with the next idea, find somebody else's money to spend, and then um, scale up just for the days that they're shooting or whatever. And then back down to their their core production company skeleton crew, like that means that you can take significantly larger risks with what you're trying to say and do, um, and the individuals at the core of that process can have, I think, more of an effect because you're not responsible for whether 400 people still have a job in the new year. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I guess it just ties into the general the general issues with the AAA industry in in that you know everything everything needs to make an awful lot of money. Um, uh, and that's why we have, you know, DLCs and microtransactions and so it's just this budgets are so huge and they're ever growing. And it's it's a rarity when we see uh, an example that springs to mind is in some of the games they made Song of the Deep or Ubisoft, mm. they made Valiant Hearts. And it's just like those are clearly passion projects that existed yeah. purely because they wanted to make them like th- they were never going to make an extortion amount of money. They existed just as these are team passion projects. And it's a shame that, I mean people in AAA industries obviously want to express the same sort of creativity and emotion as, 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 as Indies do. I imagine that people in those, yeah, of course. in those jobs, um, you know, certainly, certainly now we're at the point where majority of people that are in those industries are not there because it's a job. They're there because they, they love that. They love that stuff. They want to be making games and I'm sure they're proud if they're making a Call of Duty game, they're proud of the work they're making, but I'm sure they also want to be able to tell other stories and, Hopefully we get to a point in the future where they'll be able to do a bit more experimental stuff and, and, and toy about and have some emotional tourism. Um, but yes, in the meantime, indies are, are, are kind of nailing it um, and doing good jobs and uh, um, unfortunately not being seen as, as much as I think it should be a lot of, a lot of these, of, of these projects. Um, but they are out there. Mm. Um, <laughs> sorry to get so deep. Because I, I knew I knew this one would. No, that is my fault. Yeah, that is definitely one hundred percent my fault. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I knew this one would, but that's but that's the um, but that's fine, and that's you know the nature of the the games and the and the, and the subjects and stuff. And um, um, so do you want before before we before we sign off? Um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the imagined Leviathan and where people can see about that and and read upon that as as that's the next thing? The imagined Leviathan is out on steam at the moment you can play version version one which is uh a i guess a demo for the for the project 
Um, it's free right now on Steam. And we're going to be patching it in the new year with a big content update. Um, hopefully some crazy new themes uh, and, and ideas. The goal of it, I guess, is not to go in a hardcore survival simulation route, but to take it more in a uh, more of a philosophical narrative route. Mm. Um, we want to give a... you the long dark, but if it was made entirely on mushrooms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, imagine like David O'Reilly's everything. Yeah. Uh, crossed with Dear Esther or something. Yeah. That's quite a good sell, actually. So the actual gameplay is is like survival, winter survival gameplay, mm. but mm-hmm. very simplified and reduced down. Um, where one of the currencies that you're burning that's like required is narrative itself. Oh, cool. Um, so you collect stories, and they're part of how you build fires to stay alive. Um, and. There are also horror, horror elements. Um, there's the titular Leviathan and other stuff that I won't spoil. Lovely. Sounds great. Um, cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that and pr- pretty much anything else you end up putting out, to be honest. I've enjoyed everything you've worked on so far. Um, thank you. Excited to see where it goes. Um, thank you for joining me. Um, this has been awesome. Um, I think it's important to talk about these topics. Um, I do highly recommend anyone listening to um, to check out your work. Um, obviously the, the Image and Leviathan but also some of the past games you spoke about do play them, they're very short it won't take you very long, you should go and play them um, do you want to tell people where they can find you online or, or anything they should check out uh, so yeah, twitter.com forward slash farfewgiants uh, and that links through to each of our individual pages um, on itch, it's just uh, farfewgiants.itch.io I think um, or on Steam, God knows. But if you search for Far Few Giants, <laughs> you'll find us. Um, yeah, do we have any other presences? We have a podcast called In the Footsteps of Giants. I don't, you can find that somewhere. You can find <laughs> it, it everywhere on iTunes or, or Spotify, where, wherever your podcast app is. Yeah. We have a Discord. We have a Patreon if you're, if you're wanting to support us. All those links will be in the description of this episode as well, if you're listening. Um, yeah, cool. Um, th- thank you so much for joining me. Um, Thanks was, so much it, for having it us. It was interesting to talk about about the business LARPing <laughs> and <some more> serious <laughs> topics. Um, yeah, th- thank you so much for, for, for this. It was amazing. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. Cool. Bye. And we will catch everyone next time. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Toad on Games podcast. I genuinely appreciate it so, so much. It is an absolute honour to be able to speak to everyone working in the industry on a weekly basis, telling their stories and sharing their experiences, and it's a, it's a genuine honour. And if you do want to back this podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash toadsanime. I know it's detrimental to say, but I always want to. Um, I do not financially depend on the Patreon. It just helps me make it feel like what I'm doing isn't a waste of time. Um, so there are absolutely better things you can be putting your money towards, and please do so. But if you do back it, whether it's a dollar or three dollars, I am more grateful than you will ever know. And of course, in turn, you get a shout out at the end of every single weekly episode, and also early access to each episode. So instead of getting it publicly on the Monday, you will get it on a Friday through Patreon with a listening link there. So do make sure, if you are backing, that you head there every Friday evening about 6pm to listen to the latest episode early. So for those backing, I will be naming you all. I am using the Patreon name that you have on your account, by the way. 
if you do want to be named something different, please tell me or, or change your name on Patreon. I'm literally just reading through the relationship manager list I have. Thank you so much to KM, Nathan, Romy Halfweeg, David Jarrett, Andy Jones, Kamal Perlher, Farfew Giants, Robert Cathels, James Coop, Thomas, Francesco Limus, EMH Richard, Corey Class, Chris Wood, Gregory Phillips, Lee Chapman, Stephen, Andy Robertson, Gregory Kroll, Joe Sheedy and Ryan Winter. Thank you so, so much, all of you. It means more than you will ever know. And I will catch you all on the next episode. Bye for now.